0: It'll help if you have a copy of um, your Bibles, flip open, or if not, your handphones uh, scroll down to uh, Psalm 45, and just keep it open before you. Please join me in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we come before your living word, may the words that are carried by my tongue and a meditation in our hearts indeed overflow and speak of a pleasing and noble theme. Amen. Now I want to begin this morning's sermon by getting us to think about some really great weddings that we have attended before. Okay? Um, so if I can ask what comes to your mind, some really great weddings that you have been before. Um, for me, a great wedding would be like this one that I attended in Thailand, in Phuket. The solemnization was held on the Hotel uh, garden lawn which was sighted on a cliff overseeing the sea, okay? Um, not, not exactly like this, but it's, it's still very grand, okay? Uh, there was great food, fireworks to end the evening. Can I turn that off first? Yeah. Now, so I'm sure you would have your great wedding moments. And what I want to ask further is uh, what is it that makes such a great wedding for you? Now, for some of us, I think we would say it's the wedding venue, right? It's the wedding venue. It's where the wedding is held. And so I went and searched the internet and I found this website which features breathtaking wedding venues in Bali for your big day, okay? So for those of you that are out there uh, planning your weddings, uh, I can recommend that to you, okay? But I cannot in any way finance your wedding, okay? Because, yeah. So here are some pictures, some slides. Uh, can I call back the previous one? Yep, so this was actually one of the pictures that was shown. It's actually a venue in Bali itself. I mean, just imagine you stand there. I mean, you will say I do to anybody, right, in this kind of, a, this kind of environment, huh? Yeah. Okay, the next slide. Yep, this is so pretty nice. Uh, yeah, tranquil kind of setting. The next one. Yeah, this is a nice little cosy century. Oh, they're all in Bali. And the last one. Yeah, this is more like a hotel function room, but still, it's, it's very nice, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Yet for others, we know that if it is not the venue that makes it a great wedding, then it's got to be the bridal dress, the bridal gown, isn't it? Right? So I'm going to say the following words at great risk um, because one of the things that May, my wife, always wanted was a different wedding gown as compared to the one that she wore for our wedding. So for her, it's too late really. Huh? Yeah, so every time she passed by the bridal shop, she like, oh, that one's so nice, that one's so nice. And I tell her, it's too late. Then she said, never mind, I will plan for my daughters. So <laughs> oh, like, I pity my daughters, huh? Okay, but um, she's not here today. She's downstairs helping out in the preschool program. So I'm free and liberty to show the following slides, okay? So I'm going to show the next few slides. Wow, nice, right? Okay, maybe I'm the only one that thinks it's nice, okay? But the next one definitely is the one that May would have wanted, okay? So can we have the next slide? Wow, so grand, huh? Imagine, yeah. Okay, thank you. Can you. Turn it off. And finally, for some others, uh, it would be the bride herself. The radiant beauty of the bride herself. It could be what makes the wedding great, could be the way that the bridegroom speaks of her, the song that he dedicates to her. Right? A song like this Well, I found a woman stronger than anyone I know, she shares my dreams. I hope that someday I'll share her home. I found a love to carry more than just my secrets, to carry love, to carry children of our own, okay? We are still kids, but we're so in love, fighting against all odds. I know we'll be all right this time. Darling, just hold my hand. Be my girl, I'll be your man. I see my future in your eyes. Maybe I'm dancing in the dark with you between my arms barefoot on the grass, listening to our favourite song. When I saw you in that dress, looking so beautiful, I don't deserve this, darling. You look perfect tonight. Okay? So, of course, we all know, I didn't write it, huh? I'm not so talented, okay? <laughs> we know this is Ed Sheeran, right? His song, Perfect, yeah? And uh, yeah, I remember a season where almost every wedding I attended, they were playing this song. Huh? Yeah. Is that still a very popular song now? It still is. Okay, yeah, so it's, it's a nice song, yeah? I give full permission for all the men to go back home and say this to your spouses tonight, okay? And so it could be a different things that make a wedding great and grand. And really, seen in the light of great weddings, Psalm 45 is just that. It is a song written for a great wedding. Not just any wedding though, but a royal wedding. This is the wedding of the Israelite king. And like any other royal wedding, this is a great wedding. This, you could say, is the wedding that the nation has been waiting for. Now, the closest analogy that I can find in our modern day kind of context will probably have been the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, held on the 19th of May 2018, in St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle in the United Kingdom. Now, that would probably have been one big wedding that England was looking forward to, right? Okay? And so that's what you find in Psalm 45. Psalm 45, it's the wedding of the Israelite king. The interesting part, though, is that a close reading of Psalm 45 shows us that this wedding is great, not because of its venue. Though undoubtedly, I'm sure the wedding will have taken place in the most lavish of settings possible, Right? The wedding is great, not even because of the bride. Though I'm sure the bride will be as radiant and beautiful as she can be. But this wedding is great because of the bridegroom. So for once, attention is given to the bridegroom. You realize that, don't you? You attend all the weddings and now contemporary weddings, right? Attention is often given to the bride, the venue, the decor, and uh, sometimes attention is even given to the best man, especially if the best man is regular king, eh, you know, or the bridesmaid, right? But attention is seldom given to the bridegroom, right? But in this case, it's different. It seems like the psalmist intends to direct our wholehearted attention to the bridegroom himself. It's as if he's saying, Behold, this is your king, the royal bridegroom. And as we allow the psalmist to direct through his words and his composed verses, and even his tongue, as the psalmist probably recited the psalm publicly before the king, we are led to see a picture of radiant glory. The radiant glory of the royal bridegroom, the king. So five aspects of the radiant glory of the king are shown before us in Psalm 45. Okay? So first, we are led to see who the king is and what he looks like. So verse 2, have a look at verse 2. The king or the royal bridegroom is described as the most handsome of the sons of men. Now the Hebrew word for handsome here actually bears more the idea of uh, most excellent. Okay? It even bears the idea of beautiful referring to the physical appearance of the person on whom this term is used, okay? So in other words, you could translate it the other way, that the king here is the most beautiful of all men, yeah? And that really sounds quite strange, right? Because you don't normally describe a guy, a man as beautiful, right? The only term, the time that you can use this is when you are describing uh, maybe Korean actors, huh? Yeah, Korean actors, they are the most beautiful of all men, eh? but other than that, you don't really use this term. But that's the term that's used here. In Psalm 45, the king is the most beautiful of all men. Yeah, Yet the strange thing is that even as the king is described as the most beautiful of all men, we don't see any description of how the king physically looks like in the psalm. And that makes it quite different from novels that we read, isn't it? So imagine if we're reading a novel, and if it was a novel that we're reading, and we come across this mention where the author writes, the king was the most beautiful of all men. We straight away would expect a further description of the king's physical appearance, isn't it? His chiseled jaw, his distinct cheekbones, his sparkling grey eyes, his muscular physique, his long flowing hair, and that mysterious, almost non-present smile peeping through his facial features. Meaning we would get expect a description of someone like this, isn't it? Show the next slide. Next slide. <laughs> yeah, we expect somebody who looks like this. Okay? Aquaman, eh? that's just in case you're wondering who that is, okay? Okay, thank you. you. Can turn that off? I don't want you all to be too distracted. Okay. But yet that's not what we find in the psalm. Instead, we see the psalmist describing the king as the most beautiful of men. And immediately, what we find is a description of the king's character traits. The king is gracious, verse 2. It's as if grace has been poured upon his lips. His lips have been anointed with grace. Graceful speech and gracious words pour forth from his lips. Adding to the picture of the king, as someone bearing gravitas and wisdom. Verse 4, The king is someone who seeks out truth, meekness, righteousness. Understood in the Old Testament worldview, here will be someone who stands for enduring reliability and firmness. Here will be someone who recognizes his rightful place before God. And here will be someone who is concerned about how his people are relating to God in their covenantal relationship. Verse 7, he's described as someone who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. So when you pull it all together, we find here a king who is quite unlike the ancient Near Eastern kings back then. More often than not, the ancient Near Eastern kings back then were kings who were capricious. They were proud. They were concerned with their own interests and self-gain. But that is not the Israelite king described here. It is who the king is that radiates his beauty and his excellencies. Second, as part of the radiant glory of the king, we are led to see what the king does. The king rides out in battle against his enemies, verse 3 to verse 5. If you look at Psalm 45, verse 3 to verse 5, he girds up his sword on his tie and in splendor and majesty marches out on his war horse victoriously against his enemies. And as the king does that, three things happen. The king's right hand displays his marvellous and awesome deeds. As he fires arrows from his quiver, his sharp arrows find their way into the hearts of his enemies. And as a result of all this, his enemies and the nations fall at his feet. Now, I can't help but as I read these verses, I couldn't help but think of the classic majestic scene from Lord of the Rings, right? I can't remember which one it is, but one of them where where, where Gandalf, remember Gandalf rides out in battle and he's dressed all brilliantly in white, leading the army, and so call upon that picture. Something like this. And as the king rides out in battle, victorious against his enemies and subduing them. It leads the psalmist to break out in praise. Verse 6, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, that's a really interesting statement. Who is the psalmist addressing that line to? If he's addressing the king, then isn't it strange that he should invoke God's name and attribute it to the king? Even though that was a common practice in ancient Near Eastern times, to see their kings as gods, such a practice is less likely to happen for the Israelites. Okay, Because only Yahweh is God. So I think it makes better sense to see the reference as referring to God Himself. That is, as the psalmist speaks of the king like a warrior, the Israelite king like a warrior, as the psalmist speaks of the Israelite king girding his sword, mounting up his horse and riding out gallantly into the horizon to fight against the enemies, the psalmist is led to picture God. The image of the king riding out into battle against his enemies morphs into the image of God who fights for his enemies. The image of the king who defeats and subdues his enemies and who sits on his throne morphs into the image of God who has all his enemies subdued under his feet, even as he sits on his throne. So in other words, looking at the Israelite king, that image morphs into one of God himself. So the best illustration I can pull up is the following slide, okay? So I want you to just have a look at a picture before you and I want to ask, how many of you see a young lady? Put up your hands, please. Okay. Okay, good. How many of you see an old lady? Okay. And how many of you see nothing at all? Okay. If that's you, it's time to open your eyes, okay? (laughs) Yeah. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? It depends on which perspective you see it from, right? Okay. So if you look at the year... If you look at the year of the young lady, then that image will morph into that of the old lady, isn't it? But if you focus on what is the nose of the young lady, then you find that the image morphs into that of a young lady. Okay? Thank you. You can turn it off. That's the same effect with the psalm. That's the same effect. Even as the psalmist describes the king, at certain points, the image of the Israelite king morphs into the image of God himself. Okay? Third, as part of the radiant glory of the king, we see the reign of the king. That is how the king rules. Verses 6 to to 7, put simply, it is a reign of uprightness, justice. It's a reign of righteousness and one where wickedness is hated. If the image of the king who fights for his people morphed into the image of God who fights for his people, then here, the reign of the king morphs into the reign of God himself. What characterizes the reign of the Israelite king? Justice, righteousness, one where even the slightest tinge of evil and wickedness is not tolerated. All these characteristics are what describes the reign of God over his people. Okay. Fourth, as part of the radiant glory of the king, we see how the king is revered and honoured. So verse 8, look at verse 8. The king is adorned by exotic spices and gifts. Okay. All the most exotic spices and gifts you can think of in the ancient world back then, the king has it. Okay? Um, verse 9. The king is so revered and honoured not only in his land, but even across the surrounding lands and nations. So much so that the kings of these surrounding nations would choose to offer their daughters in marriage to the king as a political act to cement the relationship between the two countries. So in our modern day terms, you can think about it like a trade agreement. Correct? Right? Trade agreement between two countries. And the two countries, the, the different uh, civil servants will work very hard to get to that trade agreement. And then the day comes where there's a signing of the trade agreement and after that, both ministers, both the heads of the nations will hold a piece of paper. They'll stand, they'll smile there, and then they, they take a picture. Right? It's a bit like this. Okay? Back in the ancient Near Eastern times. Except that it is not a piece of paper that is signed by the heads of two nations. But instead, it is a daughter of one of the kings given to the other king in marriage. Okay? Now, I know this practice sounds distasteful to modern years because it almost seems to commodify women right, in that sense, but we must recognise that that was a common practice back then. Okay? And that is what is most likely happening here in this psalm. Even as the psalmist pens, this psalm is a wedding song to the king on his wedding day it was most likely a wedding whereby the king was marrying one of the daughters of the surrounding nations. So the queen that is mentioned in verse 9, standing at the right hand of the king, is very likely one of the daughters of the kings of these neighboring nations, right? In fact, verse 9 says, Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honour. Now, the term ladies of honour is actually a very polite way of translating what could be the meaning that's carried by the Hebrew. Okay? It's actually more of the idea that all these daughters of the nation stand before the king and he's free to choose who he wants. Okay? In that sense, that's the kind of idea behind it. That's why the psalmist goes on in verses 10 to 15, to address the bride. In there, he addresses the bride. And he says this to her, in light of the radiant glory, in light of the beauty of the Israelite king, please set aside your thoughts of your home country and your family. Verse 10, put that away. Instead, verse 11, focus on pleasing and honouring the king. And as she does that, verse 12, as she does that as the queen she will share in the tribute offered to the king by foreign nations. She will move into the upper echelons of society and receive the attention of the wealthy. And in verses 13 to 15, the psalmist shows how the king is revered and honoured with the best tribute and gift of all. One very relevant to the wedding context, the king is presented with the gift of his bride. So together with all her chambermaids, her virgin companions, she is, verse 14, she is led to the king. This is an action that often describes bringing something or someone as a gift, a sacrifice, a tribute, or even as booty from the war. With joy and gladness, they are all led along as they enter the palace of the king. Where from there, she alone As the newly married bride, she alone will have the privilege of entering the king's innermost chambers. Okay? At this point, it becomes NC 16, if you understand what I mean. Okay? And that leads in very nicely and naturally to the fifth and last aspect that spells of the king's radiant glory. The king's name will be remembered and praised forever. Verses 16 to 17. The king's future is bright. He will have many sons, and each of these sons will become a prince over some part of the earth, which goes to show you the universal rule of the king. His rule is not just limited to Israel. And through these sons, the king's name will be remembered across all generations. At the mention of the king's name, there will only be one response, praise from the nation's forever and ever. Behold, this is your king, the royal bridegroom. When we read Psalm 45 in isolation by itself, the psalm makes sense. It is as what I've tried to show us, a wedding song that declares the radiant glory and beauty of the royal bridegroom, the king. And in that way, the psalm portrays Israel's king in a manner that is consistent with the picture that we see in the Old Testament, right? It's consistent with the picture that we got when we read our responsive reading earlier from 2 Samuel 7, where God says that he is the one who will establish the throne of the Davidic kingship, of the the Davidic monarchy. Psalm 45 is totally consistent with that picture, But when you read Psalm 45, together with its two preceding psalms, the two psalms that came before that, Psalm 42 and 43, and Psalm 44, and when you read all these psalms as an Israelite, the psalm begins to appear more bewildering, even ironic. For as we have seen over the past two weeks, Psalm 42 to 44, they were most likely lament psalms, Written in the exilic or post-exilic period, when Israel was in exile and when the Davidic kingship was no more, so that straight away raises the question: How then does Psalm 45 continue to speak to the Israelites, to their community, who had little or no hope that the Davidic kingship would ever be resumed? See, by speaking of the Israelite king in such radiant and grand terms, isn't it ironic? especially when the Davidic kingship was no longer around following the exile. So how would Psalm 45 connect with the hopes and aspirations of its readers? To these questions, I want to affirm that Psalm 45 still speaks to the Israelites, readers. The fact that Psalm 45 is canonized as part of the whole collection of the Psalms in the exact order that it appears in, that is after Psalms 42 to 44, shows us that Psalm 45 continues to speak powerfully to the Israelites across her history. It still does. But in order to do that, it would call for a reinterpretation of the words and images of the king represented in Psalm 45. It will call for reinterpretation of all the divine promises that God has made to David and his descendants. Whatever references there were to the Israelite kings in the now defunct Davidic kingship, they would have to be reinterpreted. And they need to be reinterpreted because the physical Israelite king is no more. So rather, all these verses would have been re-signified to speak of a future one, who would come to accomplish what all the former rulers and former kings failed to do. This future one will come to fulfill the expectations of God and lead his people rightly in the paths of Yahweh. right? And that is what is happening with the category of what we call the royal psalms in the collection of the psalms. Okay, And Psalm 45 belongs as a royal psalm. All the way to book three of the Psalms, that is, book three takes us to Psalm 89, okay? All the royal Psalms would have been reinterpreted as expressions of a hopeful future in which God's anointed king would once again come back and rule over God's kingdom. Okay? But as we read on, there is a further development, it doesn't just end there. In books 4 and 5, that is from Psalm 90 onwards, there seems to be a further development in the royal psalms. Scholars who work on the book of Psalms, they tell us that in books 4 and 5, from Psalm 90 onwards, there appears a collection of what they call the Yahweh Malak Psalms. That is, Psalms which portray Yahweh as king himself. The Hebrew word for king is malak, Okay, so that's why Yahweh Malach means Yahweh as king. Okay? So the royal psalms start to portray Yahweh as king himself, which means that the Israelite reader reading the psalms right into books 4 and 5, into the later psalms, they would find their hopes shifting from that of a kingly rule to the rule of Yahweh himself. They would find their hopes shifting from a new human Davidic king to Yahweh as their King Himself. So the Bible commentator, one Bible commentator on the Psalms, Jared Wilson, he states it nicely this way, and I call on the slide for us. He says this, What we see then is a two-stage reinterpretation of the Royal Psalms, such as Psalm 45, in the final form of the Psalter. A first stage is reflected in Psalms 2 to 89, in which hopes for the re-establishment of the Davidic monarchy are pushed into an eschatological future. Then there is a second stage, reflected in the final form of the Psalter, in which the descendant of David is understood as the anointed servant who ushers in the direct rule of Yahweh himself. Okay? Thank you, Lieutenant For us... For us Christians reading Psalm 45 today, that king is the Lord Jesus himself. That new human Davidic king who subsequently morphed into the image of Yahweh as king himself, that is now fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ who has come. Jesus is the one who fulfills the Davidic kingship and kingdom. Jesus is the one in whom God comes to us directly as king. Jesus is the one who fulfills what the psalmist said in Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And what I want to say is that if you have been reading Psalm 45, maybe in your DGs, as you all looked at it together as a DG, or in your own uh, devotional reading, as you read Psalm 45, and you couldn't help but find at certain moments the image of the king mentioned in Psalm 45, morphing into the image of our glorious and beautiful Lord Jesus Christ. If you find that happening to you, I want to say it is okay. After all, like what I teach my students in my class on biblical interpretation, the only reason why you and I come to the Old Testament and read the Old Testament, of which the Psalms is a part of, the only reason why we do that is because we come to it as Christians, isn't it? Am I not right? How many of us in this room here approach the Old Testament and come to see it as our scriptures because we are Jews or because we were converted to Judaism? How many of us? None, right? But we come to the Old Testament and we come to see it as the living word of God to us because we come to it as Christians. We come as those who have heard God in His one word in two testaments through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you read Psalm 45, and you couldn't help but at certain moments picture the Lord Jesus, that's okay. He is, like what one of the contemporary songwriters has called, He is the beautiful Savior. If you couldn't help but picture Jesus as you hear the words mentioned of the King, that He is the most excellent of men, the most beautiful of them all, that's because that is true. Jesus, as the fulfilment of the Davidic king, is the most excellent of all men. He is the beautiful one. Words of grace and gracious speech pour forth from his lips. Yes, he is firm and harsh against all evil and wickedness and religious pretense, but he is always gentle and gracious in his speech to those who genuinely repent, those who genuinely seek a word of forgiveness and healing. He is merciful and gracious to such. He is the one of whom it is said, A bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering weak he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the nations will hope. Matthew chapter 12, verses 20 to 21. He is the one from whose lips poured out the following words, words which a sinful woman so desired to hear, and she heard it from the Lord Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. John 8:11. He is the one who in the midst of intense suffering on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, verse 34. In Him and His reign is found truth, justice, righteousness, mercy, and grace. Yet like the king depicted in Psalm 45, Jesus is also the warrior lord who will fight for his beloved people against his enemies. He is the very first one among mankind, humanity, who has put on the full armour of God in battle against the devil and his spiritual forces, as we saw in Ephesians 6, not too many weeks ago. He is the one who, as pictured in the great vision in Revelation 1, he is the one that's coming out of his mouth, is a sharp, double-edged sword, of which he will slay his enemies with the breath of his mouth and destroy them by the splendor of his coming. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 He is the one, who, as spoken of in Revelation 19, he is the warrior king. 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, This is the King who fights for His people, His bride, the Church of Christ. As God's people reading His Word and hearing His voice today, Psalm 45 is the healing balm that we need, even as we experience in the different seasons in our lives the lament of Psalms 42 to 44. For what often brings us to lament what brings us to lament is ugliness, isn't it? The ugliness of life, the ugliness of this world, the ugliness of the devil and all his spiritual forces creating havoc in our lives, the ugliness of sickness and diseases, the ugliness of death, the ugliness of other people's sin and aggression and hurt towards us, and most of all, the ugliness of our own sin. What brings us to lament is often the ugliness of this world, coupled together with what seems to be the absence of God. That is what brings you and me in the seasons of our life to lament. Psalm 45 reminds us today that God is present. He's not absent, He is present as King Himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ the one who is full of grace, mercy, justice, righteousness, the one who is for his people, his royal bride, of whom he loves with an intense, undying covenantal love, the Church of Christ, whom he will purify. So when you and I are overwhelmed by the ugliness of it all, may we, as this psalm directs us to, turn to our beautiful Saviour, the one who alone is the most excellent, of men all. So as we experience the ugliness in our lives, may the beauty of Jesus be our healing balm. Amen.